Let's pray. Father, we come to you on this Easter morning and today more than any other day we are reminded that all that we have is yours. Everything that we have comes from you. Every blessing that we know is rooted and grounded in your love for us. So Lord, we pray, take this offering simply as an expression, as a symbol, as a token of the overwhelming love that we feel for you in return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just going to read this morning from John's Gospel, from John chapter 20. So John chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the other disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told him that he'd said these things to her. Let's come pray. And Father, we pray that as you open the, the eyes and the minds of the disciples on that Easter Sunday to see and to know that you had risen from the dead, Father, we pray that you'll open our eyes, open our minds, that we may receive from your word the truth of what that Easter means for us. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a, another one of those weeks that sadly seems to come all too frequently now that I'm sure has shaken and shocked us all. 
those terrible atrocities, those bombings in Brussels. In fact, as I thought about it during the week, it came to me that Elaine and I, a number of years ago, went to Mumbai. Then a few months later, there were terrorists attacked there. On our way to Ethiopia, we stopped off in Turkey for a night, and soon after, bombs started going off there. Then we went to Italy last summer, and where did we fly through? Brussels. And I began to worry, you know, the security services might begin to put this together and suspect I'm some kind of terrorist mastermind. But then it struck me, you know, that so widespread are these atrocities that this could be said of almost anybody, that almost anywhere, wherever we go in the world, is either recovering from or soon we fear will be hit by some kind of devastating terrorist atrocity. However, these incidents in Brussels weren't the only events in the news that hit home with me this week. There was also the trial of Clayton Williams, the young man who deliberately drove the stolen car he was driving into the Liverpool policeman, David Phillips, tragically leading to the death of this father of two young daughters. And it was heartbreakingly sad to hear and to read some of the tributes to this man. His daughters, I believe, before his death, had put together a collage-headed super daddy. And they shared on this all the fun things that they'd done with their father and how much they loved him. His wife, Jen, she shared how she had loved him and told of how since his death in less than a year she'd lost two and a half stone that she couldn't afford to lose and was still losing weight. That though she was fighting hard to make life as normal and happy as she possibly could for her two girls, yet that behind the facade she describes her life now as a living hell. Devastation. We're surrounded by human devastation and so many in our world today just feel helpless and hopeless in the face of this. Well, this Easter episode that we're going to look at this morning, it begins at the point of devastation. And let's see where this journey ends. But of course, the woman who stands at the heart of this devastation is Mary, Mary Magdalene, a very interesting and in some ways an enigmatic Bible character. She only appears in John's Gospel in connection with the cross and with the resurrection of Jesus. For example, in John 19, 25, she's one of the, the small group of loyal, faithful women who stand near to the cross of Jesus. In Luke 8, verse 2, we're told that she was among a, a group of women who'd been cured by Jesus of evil spirits and demons. In fact, it's specifically said of Mary that seven demons had been cast out from her. Now, in the Bible, the number seven is among a, a group of numbers with symbolic significance. And what it symbolizes is completeness. That is that Mary was completely under demonic control. Morally, physically, emotionally, mentally, in every way, she was a woman reduced to a shell of a human being, debased and degraded. However, there has been, I have to say, a tendency in church tradition to link Mary Magdalene with the woman in Luke chapter 7, the previous chapter of Luke, who anoints Jesus' feet with precious perfume and then wipes them with her hair. This woman being 
described in Luke 7.37 as a woman who'd lived a sinful life. That is, a prostitute. Now, I have to confess that this is a tradition that I've followed along with, and I've actually preached on this passage before from that perspective. But now I have to say that I'm convinced, it's not often that I say this, that I was wrong. That I got it wrong. For a number of reasons. First, because as incapacitated as Mary was, she couldn't have functioned in any meaningful way. Not even as a prostitute. Also because in Luke 8, 3 it goes on to say that Mary was among a group of women who supported Jesus and the disciples out of their own means. You see, Mary was a woman of means. Not a Jewish peasant woman scraping a living in whatever way she could. Indeed, an interesting fact is that in almost every Bible passage where Mary is mentioned in connection with other women, her name always heads the list. You see, this woman, this Mary, once restored by Jesus, she then takes her natural place as a leader among her contemporaries. Mary then, in Christ, she was restored and enabled to fulfill her potential. No longer was she a woman broken and abused by Satan and sin and by his demonic emissaries. No, in Christ, by the power of Christ, by the power of the Spirit of Christ, she had been set free to be the woman that she'd been created to be. Surely we can understand that. How totally devastated she was by the death of Jesus. And by the fact that he'd been put to death in the cruelest, most humiliating way imaginable. He'd done everything for her. He meant everything to her. And now, he was gone. And you know, there might even have been just a touch of fear here. Jesus had cast these demons out of her. But what guarantee was there that without Jesus, these demons could be kept at bay? One detail that John adds here in comparison to the resurrection accounts in the other Gospels is found in verse 1. Where after stating that Mary went to the tomb early on the first day of the week, John then adds the descriptive words, while it was still dark. Now the other gospel writers speak at this time in, in slightly different ways. Mark at dawn. Luke, sorry that was Matthew at dawn. Mark just after sunrise. Luke, he puts it simply, very early in the morning. But when you put it all together, what do you have? that the initial discovery of the resurrection straddled that time when the darkness of night gave way to the first light of dawn. But you see, John here chooses to focus on these last moments of darkness. Why? Well, because as we've seen again and again as we've walked our way through this gospel, because John loves to use symbolism. And probably his favourite piece of symbolism is one that is commonly used in other places throughout the Bible, and that is the symbolism of light and darkness. Light symbolising 
the holiness and the glory of God. Darkness, the moral and spiritual situation of mankind in rebellion against God. Separated from him because of our sin, because of that rebellion, and as a result of that, spiritually and morally in the darkness. Well, I want to say to you, at no time in human history was the darkness of human sin more evident than at the cross of Jesus Christ. So as Mary stumbled then toward the tomb of Jesus in the darkness, just as dawn broke, devastated, lost, feeling helpless as if all hope is gone, how well she symbolizes the plight of mankind today in a world that has turned its back on God. Lost in the darkness. Helpless and apparently without hope in this world. Broken, hurting, afraid, living a life without any true lasting purpose or meaning. You know, isn't that true to the life of so many in our world today? Isn't that where they are with so many others? Chasing after possessions perhaps, filling their life with one pleasure after another, in that desperate attempt to try and avoid facing up to the fact that life as it is, that life as they are living it, is ultimately without lasting purpose and meaning. You know, a few short years on this earth. For what? And then what? Then what? Aren't these the questions that so often either overwhelm people or that they spend all their life energies trying to run away from, trying to avoid facing up to? And this is how we find Mary Magdalene then on that first Easter Sunday, devastated because Jesus has died. And without Jesus, life is empty and life is without hope. Just one other detail that we should maybe deal with here before we move on to the next step in, in Mary's journey, and that is that, that some who are hostile to the gospel and hostile to the Christian faith, they often make a lot out of what they see as seeming contradictions between the various gospel accounts of this first Easter Sunday. For instance, John here, it said, talks of Mary going alone to the tomb. Other Gospels, though, speak of a group of women. John talks of Peter and John himself rushing to the tomb in response to this news that Mary brings them, where some other Gospels, though, only mention Peter. John is Jesus addressing Mary in a very particular and personal way, whereas other Gospels have a group of women who meet with the angels just as Mary does, but receives a different message from them and there is no mention at all of them meeting with the risen Christ. Well, you know, it's back to what I said when we started out in John's Gospel. Each of the Gospel writers was an individual. Each of them was writing their Gospel, addressing their Gospel to a different group within the church in order to address different situations within the early church. So, of course... They picked out different details. They focused in on different people in order to make their message as relevant as it could possibly be to their audience. 
So I don't see the fact that the Gospels come at the same story from a slightly different angle as a challenge to their authenticity. In fact, I have to say, I see it as a, another proof of their authenticity. I mean, if the Gospels were all neat and tidy, if everything fitted together easily in a way that we could just grasp straight away, then wouldn't that suggest to you then something much more that's been put together, that's been fitted together and orchestrated by men? But the fact that there are things that don't instantly, easily seem to fit together, doesn't that suggest that what we have in the Gospels is something real and authentic and unaltered? And you know, in fact, when you actually look at the different Gospels and take time to think about them and use just a little bit of imagination, well then what people who are hostile, hostile critics, what they see as big problems, I don't think are actually such problems after all. Just an example. A lot is made of the fact that John seems to have only Mary going to the tomb. Whereas the other Gospels have a group of women. But look at what Mary actually says when she responds to the Gospel in verse 2. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. You see, Mary might have been the one who John chose to focus on, but she doesn't seem to have been the only woman at the tomb. And the rest of the story of the first Easter morning, there are a number of possible ways. If you just pop pencil in just a few of the missing details, there are a number of ways by which you can fit this together in, a, in the kind of logical way that suits our modern Western mind. Just one example. Mary goes to the tomb of Jesus with a group of women just before dawn breaks. They see that the tomb is open and Mary, she rushes off to let the disciples know. While she's gone, the other disciples encounter the angels with one of the angels, the more prominent, the one who speaks to them, being the only angel mentioned in some of the gospel. Peter and John rush to the tomb. By the time they get there, the other women have gone. Some of the other Gospels only mention Peter at the tomb because he's the prominent figure among the disciples. But of course, John, in his usual understated way, the other disciple can't help but mention the fact that he was there. Mary then has her encounter with the angels and with Jesus then at some point she joins with these other women and goes to tell the apostles all that has happened. I believe that fits together logically. But you see, this was never the concern of the gospel writers. To put in every detail in a logical sequence in a way that would satisfy the modern Western mind, that was never their concern. Their concern was in the way to communicate this in the way that was most relevant to their readers, and that is to focus on the truth that stands at the heart of this story. Not the details, the truth, which is what we're going to move on to look at now together. And it is transformation. That's what matters. Transformation. And it all really starts with Mary's meeting with these two angels which immediately just makes it clear that whatever has happened to the body of Jesus, and Mary obviously fears the worst here, 
probably the enemies of Jesus, not satisfied with humiliating him and breaking his body on the cross, that they've now taken his corpse away to further desecrate it. But what you see, what the presence of these angels says, though Mary, distraught as she was, seems initially unable to grasp this, is that whatever has happened to Jesus isn't about a vindictive act by men, but rather it is a work of God. But what does this transition, transformation consist of? Well, firstly, and most importantly, there's the transformation of Jesus. And the first indication of this actually comes before Mary's meeting with the angels. When Mary, immediately upon seeing that the tomb is open, she runs off without further investigation to let the disciples know of this terrible thing that's happened. Peter and John rush to investigate, and it's interesting that, that John, obviously younger and fitter, gets there first. But it's Peter, true to his impetuous nature, who rushes into the tomb to investigate what's happened. But doesn't that kind of detail just underline the fact that this is an eyewitness account of somebody who was actually there? What's significant here, though, is what Peter and John then see when they look into the tomb. And the sense that we get is of the cloth that would have enfolded Jesus lying there in the exact place where they had been when his body lay there. And it was as if the, the body of Jesus had in some way passed through these cloths. Now, now what's interesting, very interesting, is that this is quite different from what we read about Lazarus' resurrection in John 11. For you see, there we're told in verse 44 that when the dead man came out, his hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen and we had a cloth around his face. But you see, what I believe this makes clear is that Jesus was raised not just to life, not just to live again, but then to die as Lazarus. He wasn't even raised again simply to immortality, to live forever in heaven as he'd done on earth. But rather, Jesus was raised to a whole new level of existence, which is part of the explanation, surely, why Mary here, and later a number of the other disciples, why they failed when they first met with Jesus to recognize him before his identity gradually dawned upon them. So you see, there was continuity between Jesus' pre- and post-resurrection body, but there was also something different about the risen Christ. Because he had risen to a new level of existence. There's something of the the veil of his humanity that had shielded man from his overwhelming glory during his time on earth, his life on earth, as that veil was here removed. I want to say to you, I believe that this will be paralleled in our experience. That when we at our death or at Christ's return, when we go to be with him, that we too will go on not just to live the same life at the same level forever. Not that. Rather, 
we will be raised to a new level of existence. That's resurrection life for the Christian. Of course, not to the level of Christ, because Christ is God. But the life that we will then live in Christ will be far beyond. That's resurrection life for the Christian. Far beyond anything we can now imagine. Now that's just a little bit of a detour into something about the resurrection of Jesus means for us, but we'll talk just a little bit more about that in a minute or two. But let's move on from what the transformation of the resurrection meant for Jesus to look at what this transformation meant for Mary and for me. This revolves around three words and phrases in this section here. Jesus saying Mary's name, Mary. Mary's reply, Rabboni, which actually means something like my own dear teacher. And what both Jesus and the angels then say to Mary, woman, why are you crying? But the key is, after Mary's confession, sorry, confusion, where she mistakes Jesus for the gardener and, and asks him where his own body is, is the fact that Mary recognises Jesus when he says her name. You see, it's the deeply personal nature of this and of Mary's response to Jesus. My dear teacher, this is the way that the transformation that the resurrection brings affects Mary. She realises that it is her Jesus. This is her Jesus. She doesn't yet get all the implications of this, but later on she will. When the Holy Spirit comes, she will. That the Jesus who died on the cross, God become man, God and man, to pay for the sin of this world, to pay for the sin of man, the rebellion of man against God that leaves us separated from a holy, sinless God. That the Jesus who rose from the dead, breaking the power of death and sin and Satan, that this is her Jesus. The Jesus who died, not just for all mankind, but for her. The Jesus who by the power of the resurrection, by the power of the Holy Spirit, breaks the power of sin and death and Satan. The Jesus who brings the opportunity of new life, life with God through faith in him to all mankind, that this is her Jesus, my Jesus, your Jesus, the Jesus who comes and brings us Easter life, new life, God's life, into her experience and our experience. You see, there is a deeply personal dimension to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the people of faith. It's not simply that Jesus did it for the whole world and amazing and wonderful though that is. But it's not just that. For God's people. It's that Jesus did it for me. It's that Jesus died for me. That Jesus rose again to bring me life. 
And I believe it's into that context that we should insert the comment of Jesus and the angels here. Woman, why are you crying? For you see, the fact that Jesus has risen, the fact that he has conquered sin and Satan and death, this means that we're not hopeless and we're not helpless anymore. This is what the resurrection meant for Mary in history's darkest hour. And you know, this is what the resurrection means for us too. In the life of the darkest and saddest experience of life that we might face. The question that the resurrection again and again asks us in those moments is why are you crying? Not literally why are you shedding tears because there is a place for tears in life. But the question is, why are you hopeless? Why do you feel helpless? Because Jesus has risen. Remember through your tears that Jesus has risen. And while the resurrection of Jesus doesn't always make life easy, while the resurrection of Jesus doesn't always take the pain away, and while that resurrection doesn't always answer every question, yet the resurrection of Jesus, the fact that he has risen, that changes everything. It brings transformation. The other element of transformation the resurrection brings that's touched on in this passage relates to our transformation. In the sense of the transformation of our relationship with God. And this is found, I believe, in Jesus' words to Mary in verse 17. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm returning to my father and your father. To my God and your God. You see, this is pointing to a degree of, of intimacy and closeness of relationship with God the Father that Jesus has always known, but that prior to this has not been seen as the common experience of the disciples. And while I don't believe that this is saying that post the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit, that we will have a relationship with the Father just like that of Jesus. I don't think it's saying that. Yet what I do believe this is saying is that as a result of the resurrection of Jesus, we know a transformation of the quality and intimacy of our relationship with the Father. It's our relationship with God the Father through faith in the crucified and the risen Jesus Christ is lifted up into a whole new plane. So you see, because of the resurrection, because of the transformation of Jesus there at the resurrection. So then we, like Mary, like the disciples who followed her, like all those who down through history have followed in the footsteps of their faith, we, like them, again through faith in the crucified and risen Jesus, are brought into a transformed life and into a transformed experience of God. Well, we've looked at devastation. We've looked at transformation. Let's finish by looking at confirmation. The confirmation that we find here 
of what the resurrection, of what resurrection faith should lead us into. Of what the focus of this new resurrection life should be. And we find this, I believe, in, in the interaction between Jesus and Mary from verse 16 to 18 here. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned for to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now, you know, there has been over the centuries and there continues to be right up to the present day all sorts of controversy and debate about the, these verses here. I mean, is Jesus forbidding Mary here to touch him because in some way he doesn't now want to be contaminated by sinful human flesh? So does this support what I would see as the unhealthy rejection of the human body and physical appetites by much of evangelicalism in recent times? You know, it's not just sin that's to be rejected, but rather it's anything to do with the body, anything to do with our, our physical being and, and appetites. These things are to be rejected. These things are necessarily sinful. Well, let me be clear. I don't agree with that. I mean, the body can be used. The body can be indulged in sinful ways. But the body and our physical appetites properly expressed far from being simple, and I believe a God-given gift. So why then does Jesus tell Mary not to touch him? Particularly in light of the fact that in the very next passage, he actually tells Thomas to do just this very thing. Verse 27, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side, stop doubting. Unbelief. But of course, the reason for this is that these are two people coming from two very different places. Thomas is doubting. And Jesus challenges that doubt with his physical presence. But here, Mary, you see, she wants to hold on to Jesus. She wants to keep hold of him. She wants things to go back to the way that they were and she wants them to stay that way forever. As Jesus, though, refuses to let Mary hold on to him, what he's pointed towards and what will later become clear is that Mary and every other disciple of Jesus Christ is now moving on into a new phase of their relationship with him. Where it will not just be a few of them who know them with who know him with them physically for periods of time, but rather a time when as he goes to be with the Father and now sends the Holy Spirit, a time when spiritually he can be known by every man and every woman by faith at any time, whatever they are, whatever they face. What Jesus, though, also here makes clear is what the purpose of his presence with them in the power of the Holy Spirit actually is. 
That is. Not so they can have a nice, cosy cuddle. Or our equivalent, maybe, a nice, comfortable worship time together. A teaching time where we can just bask together in his presence and all that he's done for us. You know, there's room for that. But that is not the end game. That's not the ultimate purpose of the presence of the risen Christ and the power of the Spirit in the midst of his people. It's not. But what does Jesus here say to Mary, who tries to hold him in her embrace? What does he tell her to do? Go and tell. Go and tell. Go and tell them what you've seen. Tell them what you have experienced of me. And you know, she does. Verse 18. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. You see, Easter, the resurrection, brings us from devastation to transformation. But the story of Easter ends with witness, ends with evangelism, ends with mission. So the story of Easter then is only complete when we go and tell others of Jesus. When we go and tell them of who he is, of what he's done, of what he's done. But I solemnly say to you, today, go and play your part in the Easter story. Go and tell. Go and tell your friends. Go and tell your family. Go and tell your neighbours. Tell those you work with. Go and tell them about Jesus Christ. Go and tell them that he has risen from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that that Easter message is unchanging. That you want us, just as you wanted Mary, you want us to go out there and let people know that the tomb is empty. That you've risen from the dead with all that that means of your presence and your power in our lives, for all that that means of hope and an end to helplessness. Lord, you want us to take that message and to share it around. Give us the courage to do that today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to stand.